So we live in a world uh, that is saturated with words that has something to do with this concept of love. This word, this concept of love, it bombards us everywhere you turn, whether it's the mass media or the songs on our radio or political causes or relationships or just all kinds of everyday language that all of us use. People talk about falling in and out of love. We write love letters. People talk about making love. Consider the book, The Five Love Languages, uh, written back in the 90s by this guy named Gary Chapman. It sold more than 12 million copies uh, since his first publication. Not that long ago, the slogan, Love Wins, was something that we heard a lot in the war against God's design for marriage and the fight to legalize homosexual marriage. And when the Beatles sang many years ago, all you need is love, I think they were actually onto something that was totally true and important. The problem is that our world is utterly lost as to the true meaning of the word apart from God. Our culture gives us as many meanings of this word as it does references to it. So depending on who is speaking, depending on who you ask, Love is a feeling, or is the act of sexual intercourse. It's a psychological or an emotional need. It's whatever romantic desire, whatever sexual desire any given person may feel at any particular point, or some other definition from a seemingly inexhaustible list of options. For many of the words, I love you, if you really were to scratch beneath the surface and think about what they're saying, For many people, this is another way of saying, you make me happy, or you make me feel good, or even you give me what I want. We live in a world that seems to be in love with the word love, and yet it can't provide us with any coherent, transcendent definition of a word that you can consistently apply to every single human being. So unless we as fallen people look outside of ourselves to know the true meaning of this vital word, love, we will never discover it. But instead, we will consign ourselves to a life where you grasp for something that will always be out of your own reach. So today what we're going to do is something really simple but very vital. We're going to look at one of the best places in the scriptures that give us one of the clearest most definitive definitions of this word love. We're going to look at the book of First John here in just a moment. It's fitting that in order to learn about this word love, you look to a book of the Bible that was likely written by a person that the Bible describes as the disciple whom Jesus loved. The Apostle John was many things. He was an author, he was an apostle, a prophet, a pastor. He was an evangelist. But first and foremost, he was someone who personally knew the Lord Jesus, someone who was a recipient of God's perfect love. And so this morning we're going to look at what John teaches us about this word. What is the meaning of love? We're going to look at six different truths that we see in our passage that tell us what love is all about. The scripture's teaching on love, it's, it's easy enough to understand, but it's also complex and it's, it's boundless because love originates with our infinite, eternal, unchangeable God. 
So let's turn our attention now to what we just read just a few moments ago in the book of 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. We see this first truth about love right off the bat in this very first verse when John writes, For this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So this is the first truth that we want us to see that's very clear. The first truth about love is that love is a commandment to obey. Love is a commandment to obey. John will give this command at various points uh, in the book of 1 John. In the chapter right after a passage, he's going to command his audience saying, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So in verse 11 of our passage, John connects loving one another, which in 1 John refers primarily to loving the members of God's people, with the original gospel message that the audience of 1 John had originally heard. So for John, part of the gospel message that they had received from the very beginning, from the very first, when they heard about Jesus, was this call for them to love one another, to love God's people. John sees trusting the gospel message of God's love in Christ as being something that is inseparable from this call to love other Christians. So in the scripture's way of thinking, we simply cannot be people who embrace the gospel message and also be people who refuse to love the people of God. We also must see the significance of John describing love essentially as a command that is inextricably embedded within the gospel message. And again, you see this throughout the scriptures, that love is commanded of God's people. We have to think carefully about why is this? We can easily think about Jesus' summation of all the law, all the commandments, when he quotes from the Old Testament saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he gives the command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus commands us to love our enemies in the Gospels. Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all that you do be done in love. Think about the classic marriage passage in Ephesians, Ephesians 5, where at least three times Paul's going to command husbands to love their wives. In multiple places in 1 John, you see these explicit commands to love. John's words in 1 John 4, 21 really sum up a huge part of the whole book when John says, in this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So this is so crucial for us because another way that the world is so misleading to us about the nature of love is it often is going to locate love primarily uh, within the realm of emotion. So the world often talks about love and it defines it exclusively by what you feel. Uh, so the world's going to tell us that it's impossible or it's wrong or it's inauthentic to love someone without this accompanying emotion. Now, I want to be really clear here. Your emotions matter. They matter because God made them. God made us to feel certain things. Our emotions are good gifts from God that are designed to help motivate you, actually, to obey God. Our emotions are designed to help us accurately describe reality and to tell the truth. So love undeniably has an emotional aspect to it that we have to recognize. We have to learn how to cultivate it. That will be a sermon for another day on how to do that. But for now, I want us to see there's something broken inside of us when you never feel any positive sense of emotion towards the people that we love. 
But here's what I want us to see here. I want us to see that making the distinction between the action and the feeling of love, between the command to love and the emotion of love, actually frees us up and empowers us to love people better. We can love others even if the emotional aspect of love is something that feels broken or something that's disconnected in some way. This means we can honor God by choosing acts of love and behavior that models Christ-like love. Our emotions are complex, and we do not have the ability to switch them on or off through a sheer act of our will. But by God's grace, people of God, we do have the ability to choose whether or not we will demonstrate sacrificial Christ-centered love in word and deed to people around us. People of God, choosing to love others, even when our emotions feel broken, is sacrificially loving. Something that we will later see is an essential part of the biblical definition of love. In many ways, choosing acts of love, even when your emotions trail behind you, it is more sacrificial than loving someone when your emotions are always going to match your actions. It's easy, right, to love the people that you feel loving towards. But even though it feels more difficult, it feels broken, I would argue they can still very much love people in meaningful Christ-like ways, even when you don't feel the emotion in the moment. And when we do this, what we often discover is that our emotions can begin to soften. They can begin to warm towards those that we struggle to feel any love towards. I saw a great illustration of this uh, several years ago. I was you know, wasting time on the internet, uh, and I came across this short clip of a, of a film. This is a French film that came out many years ago, or a couple years ago. And the film is a, a series of short vignettes. So short, short little stories. So here's basically the plot line of one, this one vignette that I watched. It involved this husband who at the very beginning, it's obvious that he is cheating on his wife with another woman. And he's planning to leave his wife with this other woman. And just as he's preparing to finally leave her, she tells him that she's actually just been diagnosed with a very serious form of cancer. So the husband is shocked. He is deeply saddened. He's stunned by this. So the climax of the story is what happens next? What does he do next? Well, the man decides that his affair was wrong. He must end it and he has to do the right thing by taking care of his sick wife. And then you hear the narrator of the story give this great line by saying this. The narrator says, by acting like a man in love, he became a man in love. By acting like a man in love, he became a man in love. That's a great picture of what we're talking about here. That choosing sacrificial Christ-like love, choosing to obey God's commands of loving people, actually makes us into people who are more lovely, people who become more lovely, people who can begin to cultivate the other aspects of love, like our emotions that are Okay, so that's our first thing about love that we see, that love is a commandment to obey. What else do we see in our passage about love? Well, we also see that love is the assurance of life. Love is the assurance of life. John writes in verse 14, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Here John tells us that the presence of love amongst God's people is this assuring sign of God's work of regeneration, that we have been brought out of the realm of sin and death, and transferred in, into the domain of God's new creation life. The brothers that John mentions here is just a shorthand way of describing God's people. 
those who have been united to Jesus by faith. Jesus talks about this transfer from death to life in another one of John's works, the Gospel of John. In John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him, who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So here in John's Gospel, Jesus wants people to see that eternal life isn't something only that awaits God's people, but there's also a very real sense that God's eternal life has already started. It's already begun for those who put their faith in Jesus. And John will say this in his letter, that love is the assurance that God's eternal life has begun right now in the present in a very real sense. The presence of love demonstrated in tangible ways among God's people helps assure us of God's intangible deliverance that he has already accomplished for us in Christ. When God's spirit recreates God's people and breathes new life into us, just as he breathed new life into Adam, all kinds of good things begin to blossom and bloom and take root. And John wants us to see that one of the most obvious signs of God's work among his people is our love for each other. During the Reformation, a number of church leaders taught and wrote about the true marks of the church. They're trying to answer the question of what exactly makes the church the church, how we can distinguish it from any other group of people. And they taught rightly that we can look at things like the preaching of God's word, the administration of the sacraments, or the exercise of godly discipline in the church in order to to distinguish the people of God from anything else. While all that is certainly true, what John teaches us today is that the ultimate mark of the church is a body of people who are characterized by their love for each other. So there's lots of ways we could apply this, but here's one really practical way. How do we do family life together in light of what John is saying? Parents, do you want to teach your children what the gospel really looks like in action? If we want our children to understand, not just on a theoretical level, but on an experiential level, then God in Christ has raised sinners from death to life, that we must love our children. We must create an environment in our homes that communicates that we prize love over everything else, that it's our greatest possession. That the work of love is worthy of our maximum time and energy. These parents must be committed to a lifetime of sacrificial acts of love in our families. Any Christian home that prioritizes anything over the call to love is a home where the Christian faith is a hollow shell. An empty confession that sows seeds of doubt in our children's hearts about the truth of the gospel. Okay, so that brings us to our third truth about love in our passage. Here's the third thing about love. We see that the opposite of love is death. The opposite of love is death. People commonly assume that hate is the opposite of love. And while there's certainly some truth to this, at several points in our passage, John is going to juxtapose death with love. After mentioning that we should love one another, John mentions that we should not be like Cain, the first person of Adam's children in the scriptures, who is described as being of the evil one. Cain obviously is the first person to maliciously impose death upon an innocent person, and John describes him as someone who did the complete opposite right of love. Instead of loving his brother, he hated and killed his brother because his own deeds were evil. The 
picture we get of Cain in the scriptures is that he was really Satan's first evangelist, Satan's first priest. Cain spread the death and misery, their characteristic uh, of Satan's domain, through his own bloodlust, and he offered up Abel as a sort of first demonic sacrifice among the children of Adam. The word that John is going to use here for murder in verse 12, it it could also mean butcher or slay, and that's a word that's often used in Old Testament context to talk about the sacrificial offerings uh, that people did in Israel's worship. And so John connects the evil murder's hatred of Cain also with the hatred of the world towards God's people. Do you see this? John implies that the mindset of the world is really just the mindset of Cain. And he writes, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So hatred should characterize the world, but not the people of God, according to John. If the world follows the way of Cain, the way of hate and murder, then God's people are to be distinguished from the people of the world by their unique, otherworldly kind of love. John states this, and Jesus states this in John's Gospel, when he says to his disciples, we read this earlier, we read Jesus saying, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The weight of Jesus' words, it really struck me this week. I had lunch with a pastor friend of mine at another church here in town. And we were just chatting about this last year, and I asked him how his church had faced all the challenges that had been happening uh, with COVID. And he basically tells me that he and other church leaders have had a very difficult time recently with how to handle the increasingly rising numbers of the COVID cases. Listen to what he says. He says, basically... um, They've had two groups of people threaten to leave their church. So one group of people threatens to leave and go to somewhere else if the church leadership does not require anyone in the church to wear a mask. And then he also says they have a a significant number of people in the church as well who threaten to leave the church and go somewhere else if the leadership does require people to wear a mask. Talk about an impossible situation, right? In the midst of all the fighting, and all the controversy we have seen amongst Christians about mass, I just keep wondering, where is the love in any of this? If believers are willing to divide and part ways over something as straightforward and simple as a mass, then there is something seriously broken in us as God's people that we have to grieve over this and repent of this. This kind of thing only reveals just how little we value the very thing that Jesus says should be the defining mark of God's people, Jesus' disciples, our love for each other. So John, later in the second half of verse 14, he gives us this very stark contrast between the way of love and the way of death. He says that whoever does not love abides in death. For John, you see, there's only two paths. There's only two ways of living that belong to two different groups of people. There's the way of love that God's people follow, the path that Jesus himself established for us. And then there's a path of hatred and death, the path paved by Satan, the path that the world adamantly follows. Okay, so we're going to move on. Let's talk about the fourth truth about love we see in our passage. What's the fourth thing that we see? The fourth truth about love is that love is cruciform 
Love is cruciform. That is, love follows the contours of the cross. Its ultimate expression comes to us in the event of Jesus' death on the cross for his people. Look at what John says in verse 16. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The scriptures teach us in a variety of places that God's supreme demonstration of his love is found in Jesus' sacrificial death on behalf of his people. If we want to know love, if we want to know true, perfect, unfailing love, then we look not to how we feel or anything inside of us, but instead we look outside of ourselves to God's actions in Christ. We look to the suffering and death of the crucified God-man to know true love, according to the scriptures. Paul says the exact same thing as John does here, when in Romans he says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here in our passage, in the second half of verse 16, uh, we see that love, the love we have for each other, it must be cruciform as well. John says, because Jesus suffered and died to demonstrate God's love for us, then we're called to demonstrate a very similar kind of love, a love that's willing to suffer, a love that's willing to sacrifice for the sake of others. It's precisely Jesus' message to the disciples when on his final night with them before he's arrested and betrayed. In John's upper room discourse, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. People have got a love that isn't willing to suffer, but instead insulates itself from pain is not Christian love. It is not a cruciform love. Instead, it is a fluffy sentimentalism that has no real power to accomplish anything that is worth living for or dying for. What we see in verse 16 is that this call to emulate Jesus' love is a call to live out a kind of redemptive death, a dying to ourselves so that others experience the life of God. The scriptures teach us in a variety of places that some kind of death for you, even before your physical death, is inevitable. The question is, what kind of death are you willing to die? Will you give people an experience of Jesus' love by your willingness to pour out your life in sacrificial ways for the good of others? Or will you selfishly cling to your own life and refuse God's call to love and sadly abide in spiritual death, like John says? I think for most of us, laying down our lives for each other may not look like something as dramatic as what a lot of people in the first century endured, what plenty of people in other parts of the world today have to face. For many of us, doing cruciform love might look like dozens of small little deaths that you're willing to endure every day, a willingness to uh, endure suffering and sacrifice for the sake of God's people, whether it's your time or your energy your emotional labor. This might look like the willingness to do the same sacrificial, repetitive actions every single day in our families. So moms and dads, when we do the mindless, repetitive things, right, like changing the diapers or the pull-ups, or cooking a meal for your family, when you take the time in the midst of a busy day to sit on the floor and play with your children, when you get up off the couch and you're really tired, it's been a long day, and you get up and you discipline your children, or you teach your children, what I want you to see is that you are loving in Christ likewise. 
you are giving your families this small but beautiful and powerful picture of what Jesus' cruciform love really looks like. Husbands and wives, when you choose to forgive each other by choosing to hold on to each other instead of holding on to your spouse's sin, you are doing cruciform love. People of God, don't overlook or undervalue these commonplace, everyday things that at first glance may seem small or worthless in some way. God does not view these things as worthless. He does not view these things as a waste of time. He's pleased with these things, and he's honored by them. When you do these things, you are sowing the seeds of cruciform love in your family, seeds that will bear good fruit. Okay, so we're going to move on. Let's talk about our fifth aspect of love that we see in our passage. The fifth aspect that we see is that love actively moves towards needs. Love actively moves towards needs. See this in verse 17. John says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So John's vision of love is not only intellectual or emotional, it's just extremely practical of what he's saying. It involves the people of God moving towards those who are suffering and in need. It involves Christ honoring empathy and a willingness to enter into somebody else's pain. John basically tells us that abiding in God's love means fighting the cold, callous indifference that is the natural disposition for all those who are outside of Christ, those who belong to the world. So this means we have to be willing to roll up our sleeves and open our hearts and enter into the painful, hard places in other people's lives. Several things stand out to me here about what is actually needed to follow what John is saying here in verse 17. First, do we actually know people well enough to truly know what they need? The people who need the most, in my experience, are often the people who are least likely to ask for help for various reasons. And so doing Christ-like love means that we must be engaged and involved enough in each other's lives to actually know and to see what is the problem? What is broken? Where do they need help? What do they need? Biblical love requires that we are caring and discerning enough, again, to see where the deepest struggles here, where are the places that are the most broken, and then requires us to actually move towards the person in Christ-like sacrificial love. So this means that we don't wait for those who are hurting to come to us and ask for help. Instead, love that seeks to imitate the Lord Jesus makes the first move towards those who are struggling and moves towards people to offer them Christ's love in a practical word, in a practical action or a deed. The kind of love that God is calling his people to show in verse 17, it must go deeper than the superficial, how are you doing? I'm fine. Kind of relationships that are very easily, uh, easy to get into that rut. It's easy to settle for those kinds of relationships in the church. On the other side of the relationship, Can you be honest with other people within God's church about where you're hurting, about what you need, so that you can actually give other people the opportunity to show God's love to you? That sounds easy enough, right? For any of us who've ever been in a a significant position of need, we know that this is hard. This is difficult. It's difficult to actually believe this is a good thing, to just be honest about the fact that you need help. It's easy to think that we're doing the right thing or the more noble thing by not asking for help because we think we just don't want to burden somebody else. 
But people of God, in reality, when we do this, what we're actually doing is denying our brothers and sisters the opportunity to actually demonstrate God's love towards us. We are robbing our brothers and our sisters the chance to grow in obedience, uh, to do God's call of showing cruciform, sacrificial love. Okay, so that brings us to our final truth about love that we see in our passage. You see this in our very last verse, verse 18. John says, little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in action and truth. So the final thing about love that we see, the final aspect of it, is that love acts more than it talks. Love acts more than it talks. You can really view this truth as really the summary of all the other aspects of love that John has already talked about. John's words here about loving each other being in action, it echoes several other places in the scriptures where God wants his people to see that love is an action that we do, right? Something that we actually live out in our lives. We've seen this several times already in our study in the book of James. James is very much concerned with the way that we live out our faith. He says we must be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. This is a huge part of what James is getting at when he tells us that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. As we've already seen, this is a description of love that begins with God's actions for us in Christ. God did not shout at his world from a distance, I love you. No, what does he do? He demonstrates his love by giving his only begotten son. He demonstrates his love by drawing near to us through his spirit, by making his home in us. So quickly, we can think for a few seconds about, again, what would this truth look like to live this out in the context of right where we are? Let's think for, just for a couple seconds about our marriages. I'm going to speak only to husbands today. Husbands, I want you to see that regularly saying, I love you, to your wife is a really good thing that we need to be doing. Uh, but that's really the, one of the easiest things that we can do in our marriages to demonstrate Christ-like love. The kind of love that will have the greatest impact on our wives is the love that's poured out by the things that we actually are doing. What are you willing to actually do for the sake of love within your marriage? That will reveal what kind of love you actually have in your heart. And whether or not your love is rooted in Christ's love or whether it's a shallow, counterfeit version of it. Husbands, are you willing to serve your wives in all kinds of practical ways? Are you willing to listen when she speaks? Are you willing to give forgiveness? Are you willing to ask for it when you sin? Are we regularly looking for ways that we can shoulder more burdens so that our wives have to carry less? So we started this morning by saying that the world is utterly lost when it comes to love. And as we close our time together this morning, God's word, I want us to see people of God that you know the secret. You know the secret of love. God has revealed the great mystery of love to you in the gospel. He has wrapped you up and clothed you with love in the Lord Jesus. And so you know the secret that sustains all of life. You know the secret that makes life actually work. You know a mystery that millions of poets and songs spanning for thousands of years have never fully understood. So because you truly know what love is, God wants you to go now and pour out your lives for the sake of love. He wants you to devote your life to something that will last 
all the way into eternity, something that will never end. He wants you to build your life on something that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. He wants you to build your life on something that will never end. Father, we praise you for your word that's true and good and right. I pray now that your spirit can come and continue to minister to us. Father, make us be a people marked by love. Energize us by your word, by your spirit to obey, Father, what you've commanded us to do. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.